So we're talking genes today, and that's genes with a G, right? G-E-N-E-S, the genetic material that we inherit. So, for example, I got short genes. I got bald genes. Clearly got those from my family. No questions asked about that. But that's not what we're talking about today. What we're talking about today are the kinds of genetic risks that we get from our parents and our families for having some psychological and psychiatric challenges downstream and to what extent we can mitigate those risks based on things we do in our environment. It's a fascinating, really optimistic topic, and we hope you'll join us. Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Gene Bereson. And I'm Steve Schlossman. And today we have a guest. Yeah, we do have a guest. And today we have a guest, Dr. Jordan Smoller, who is an associate chief of our fair department of psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital. You realize Hospital. you just managed to say guest like four times in the same sentence. Well, I'm, I, I tend to be redundant. Because redundant that would is be the, the definition. <laughs> one, of my, one of my professors said to me, you know, when I complained about, you know, things being said over and over again, he said, you know, Gene, redundancy is the essence of pedagogy. In other words, the more you say it, the more you learn. I would say pronouncing it pedagogy is the essence of kind of being boring. But anyhow, let's go. And on. he's okay. also professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical oh, School. Oh, I just like undid myself, didn't I? Oh, well, <laughs> let's turn to Dr. Smaller. Okay, but, but before we do... Um, Would you just introduce the damn guest? He's right there. Hey. Oh, hi. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what else? Let him introduce himself. Well, you did actually introduce me, which was was very nice, but it's it's a thrill to be here. I've been listening to this podcast, and it's it's fantastic. And, you know, it's an honor to get to talk about genes with somebody named Gene. Yeah. That doesn't happen all the time. <laughs> like you can't discuss Schlossmann's right, with somebody named Schlossmann. Yeah. Well, there could be a Schlossmann. It'd be a little gene. more literal. Right. <laughs> well, let, let's begin, all three of us, because uh, we typically begin by saying, like, well, what's new? What, what, what's new? Well, what's new with you this week, Jordan? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, what's new with me? Uh, well, I am very excited about uh, a number of things that are going on actually in our department and new uh, initiatives and things like that, but in, in life outside of work, such, yeah, what's such new that anywhere. it is, um, you know, it's dizzying to uh, try to um, think about the world uh, being bombarded by all of the massive news of events that have happened in this week, including fun events on the weekend, potentially, uh, and, uh, and of course, a lot of chaotic events that are happening in the world at large. So I, I'm trying to keep my head down and stay focused on the things I know how to do. That sounds like good it's advice. Like a, it's like a kind of version of the serenity prayer. That's right. <laughs> the things that you can make a difference about, you'll do. The things mm-hmm. you can't, yeah. And Steve, what about you? Um, well, Gene, 50 years ago, <laughs> I was three years old. So my memory of the last time the Kansas City Chiefs, my home team, won the Super Bowl, it was a bit foggy, 
I did go to every Chiefs game from eighth grade till I left for college. It was one of the few places that my father and I did not consistently argue. In fact, we consistently got along. But you had to cross state lines. Uh, we did, but that's that's a non-issue. It's just a non- <laughs> it's it's like it's like going from Jersey to New York. It's it's just a non-issue. The issue is that I went to all those games in the eighties and seventies, the seventies especially when they were really horrible. When that stadium was like a quarter full. It was cavernous. It was like literally being in the Grand Canyon. It echoed. It shouldn't echo. And watching that game Sunday, it's stupid, right? Because we have more control over global warming yeah. than we do over our favorite sports teams. And yet I actually teared up like all these mm, memories really? I had. Yeah, just like that was the thing. I'd, we'd come home from from Hebrew school on Sundays. I went to Hebrew school Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday. would come home on Sundays. My mom would make a salami sandwich. And then my dad and I get in the car, we'd listen to the pregame show, get to the game, watch the game, whine about it on the way home, because I always lost. Uh, and they finally did it. Yeah. They did it. And they did it in kind of a wonderful, beautiful way. It was really fun. But I was so anxious. My buddy, I was watching with my friend Peter Newberry, whom you know, and he um, brought me a weighted blanket. <laughs> he said, here, get under this blanket, drink this beer, everything will be fine. <laughs> So, I've heard those are magical. You, you, it was man, it was yeah. amazing. Like that's a different topic, but it was an incredible yeah. <laughs> response. Anyway, I'll just mention one thing that was really cool this week for me. Um, uh, to change topics, but um, I, I, it's, it's, Steve, you know this is uh, I'll, I'll this is your last show, but. In your honor, Am I, I want to fired. Did is you that know what? That? No, no, I. This is a horrible way to tell me on the air. <laughs> I'm just sorry. like in the movie. No, sorry. I, I did. I did know that, and I will miss doing this very much. But um, and I'm uh, pleased to have been a part of it. Yeah. Well, in your honor, I want to mention a film because I saw. If you haven't seen, have you seen Echoes of the Canyon? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. my God. Got the Laurel Canyon music. That scene, one yeah. of the greatest documentaries it's I've really seen good. in a long yeah. time, and how it? and how, no. well, it, it, you know, it talks about it talks about this culture of Laurel Canyon, and and the artists that actually lived in the neighborhood, like Frank Zappa lived across mm. the street from, you know, like Brian Wilson, and you know, like and and Graham Nash, and there were all these, and 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 what was so amazing about it was, you know, how Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys influenced the Beatles. I mean, oh yeah. I mean, it was, but but well, they said that, yeah. They they actually God said only it. knows what. I mean, McCartney yeah. said that was yeah. the most beautiful Pet song sounds. you'd ever heard. Pet Sounds yeah. was like an yeah. was an iconic record that influenced yeah. you know you know Rubber Soul and all kinds. And of actually, you we don't have to talk about it, but you're a big music. Guy. Yeah, I love yeah. Music you, shaped my whole life. Yeah. Didn't you have like a gargantuan music collection? M- massive or? music collection, yeah, which I still do. Although now it's all virtual, so you can't even sort of. But that's know, not as much fun, my, is it? But, like, but you, yours was vinyl. Yeah. It was vinyl, yeah. and I, you know, I, I, I tried to, you know, I collected all these rare things, and it was so great. And then one day I had to move, and I had to, sell, you know, get rid of it. And I thought, this is going to be a treasure for somebody. People are going to want to buy this whole collection. I couldn't pay people to take it. Seriously? Yeah, it was so. And you gave them away. Traumatizing. Basically, I gave it away to to uh, Bleaker Bob's or something. In, in oh my God! I still have like thousands of vinyls. Well, I still buy CDs. I probably buy about five or ten a oh, week. Really? Yeah, because the the audio quality of CDs is so much better than downloading. So I buy I mm. buy all these CDs. I have like thousands and thousands of CDs. Um, anyway, let's get on with the show, shall we? So what we're going to be talking about is. Um, Genetics and actually nature nurture that that old 
controversy. Not irrelevant to everything we just all talked about, right? It's not. Like, like I was affected by that Chiefs game because of my nurture, but to what extent did the nature of my dad and my argument? Well, my mom was a concert pianist, and and, and I grew up, you know, with, you know, musical comedies and and going backstage and, you know, living, living... that world and that world of, of, of music and it's affected me and it's probably affected my genetic structure or my genetic well, structure well, I mean, made me more prone. That's the reason we have Jordan here. You so, and I are just mm-hmm. spitballing. This guy actually knows what he's talking so, about. Jordan, so, Jordan, just since we're supposed to be addressing mental health or psychiatric problems, so, you know, when folks say, you know, this runs in families, you know, anxiety runs in my family or depression runs in my family, what, how, what does that mean? Well, uh, typically what people mean by that is that there's some people notice that their relatives, their, their kids, sometimes their you know, uncle, aunt, have the same thing that they recognize in themselves or that they're, they've seen you know, at family gatherings. And the reality is they're right about many things. So especially you know, real mental health conditions that we think about, anxiety disorders or depression or bipolar disorder, ADHD, all of those things do have a familial component. Sometimes people uh, take that too far and, or, or imagine that if something is in, you know, somebody in your family has been affected with something, you know, it's, it's like a classic genetic type thing where, uh, you know, your, your child is certainly going to develop something like and, that. And I've- I've had patients say to me, I don't ever want to have kids because I don't want to yeah. give them this thing, this depression I have. And I always try to say to them, like, it just doesn't work that way. It's not as straightforward as you're thinking That's of right. It. it doesn't work that way. So how does it work? Well, one, so one <laughs> basic fact is well, that... you put on some <laughs> sexy music. And, <laughs> right. <laughs> no, uh, you know, all of the, the mental health conditions that we're familiar with, some of the ones I just named do run in families to some extent, and to different extents. So some of them, there's a much higher kind of relative risk that if somebody in the family has it, uh, let's say their child or uh, their sibling might have it. Um, But, you know, of course, the fact that something runs in families doesn't actually tell you that it's a genetic transmission of something, because lots of things run in families, including, you know, uh, what people like to eat or uh, experiences they have, their religious backgrounds. Becoming a doctor. (laughs) Becoming a doctor. My my mother's an epidemiologist, and so am I. Your dad's a dentist. My dad's a dentist. I was, yeah. My daughter's an epidemiologist. But we do know from things like twin studies that genetic variation or or genetic differences are clearly contributing to that and probably are the biggest component of the familial or running in families aspect. So one of the things that, you know, that I always... Wait, can we just back up just for a second? You said the biggest component. So that, and this goes kind of, I guess, without saying, but it's worth stressing. Mm. That means that we've looked at people and been able to tease out statistically the influence that they're being brought up. The ways that they're brought up would have affected them, presumably through adoption studies, twin studies, all those big Nordic countries that have kept those great That's right. So that was a big... Those those have been around for a while, and, and so we've known that... And those studies allow you to tease this apart to some degree because identical twins are basically clones of each other. Except they have for the, the mitochondria, I guess. Yeah, yeah except yeah. for a few uh, small differences. And then there are non-identical twins who are like other siblings. And you can, if you assume that the world treats identical twins the same way it treats non-identical twin pairs, then to the extent that the identical twins are more similar, that, that tells you there's a genetic component. 
But now, in the last decade or so, we've actually been able to trace this down to the level of the DNA and show, uh, you know, that is the field has shown, that DNA differences, DNA changes, do uh, clearly contribute to pretty much all of the psychiatric conditions that we think about. So to twin A and twin B have different, uh, literally different structural DNAs. Is, is that what you're saying? Well, no. So now we don't even do those twin studies. We do very large studies looking at, say, people who have a condition. Let's say it's ADHD and, and people who don't. And then we actually can look directly at the genome. These are the GWAS studies. Right. So we can look at markers yeah. uh, or even the sequence all across the genome and then ask, where are places or what are the variations that are more common in people who have this condition than don't? And that has repeatedly, as, as in recent studies that have really been able to tease this apart, shown that for all of the things that we've studied in any really large-scale way, they all have a genetic component. So one of the things that, that I try to teach my medical students, um, and maybe you could kind of explain this to me and to the audience, you know, I, I, I'll use some fancy terms. I say, you know, the phenotypic expression of genetic vulnerability is triggered by the environment. What that means in lay terminology is, is that if you have a vulnerability that's encoded in your DNA, the expression of that in terms of an illness is most often or as often, in this case, triggered by the environment. Now, is that a true statement? And if so, what does that actually mean? Because I've been teaching that, mm -hmm. but you're the expert. <laughs> now, I've now been teaching can... something that I just know nothing about. Yeah, I'll totally back that up. <laughs> I, th that's absolutely true. That uh, there is no, there is no. This part of of this trait is the genes, and this part is the environment. There's uh, nature and nurture sort of always working together, and we can't, in an individual, say how much of something is is genetic. We can at a population level. So it's always true that genes, really what genes are doing is they're making chemicals in your body, proteins, and then those are running cells and then they're running parts of your brain. And, uh, but none of that, hap none of that really uh, equals a disorder. There's no the gene for ADHD or depression. There are many contributions of genes with working with whatever environment is there at the level of, uh, you know, the environment in your body, the environment in your family, all of those things, it's, it's rather complex. And you're absolutely right that genes by themselves are not destiny. So then we actually can influence the expression or the, you know, the expression meaning the translation of genetic material into a disorder or by changing our environment, by mm -hmm. changing the way we live, by changing the way we treat each other. Right. Is that, is that, yeah, I that's, think that's, that's fair that's, to say. Or by not changing it. Or by not changing yeah. it. Right. That's so right. we have some control over our own genetic, you know, um, you know, vulnerabilities. Yes, yes. Now, sometimes the environment we don't have a lot of control over. And it turns out that on the nurture side, some of the biggest influences on mental health are things that happen very early in life, especially really significant early adversity or trauma. Um, and those things have, you know, can have a powerful effect. Um, and, you know, to some extent, a lot of what we uh, concern ourselves with is trying to help folks who have experienced adversity or maybe are vulnerable for other mm -hmm. ways uh, to, to find the kinds of uh, tools to, to change the, those effects into something more positive. And I'd imagine then that, 
you know, we talk a lot about big data right now. I would imagine that as we start, so, so we start to find people who've had some um, horribly adver uh, you know, adverse experience in early life. That then leads to an increased um, expression of what was up till that point of vulnerability to a psychiatric, since we're talking psychiatry, a psychiatric syndrome. We can't change those early expressions because they come to us after their babies or after their one, two, or three. But through sort of other big data investigations, I'm guessing there are other aspects of the environment that we could manipulate. And I'm not just talking pharmacologically or psychotherapeutically. I'm talking like kind of almost in a public health way. Right. That would then confer protection right. downstream. Well, that's a big area of tremendous interest. I'll actually tell you about some research we recently did trying to answer that question using big data and genetics. So we wondered... If you knew that people were genetically at risk, let's say, based on uh, uh, sort of the totality of genetic uh, vulnerability that we can now measure, and we sometimes call these genetic risk scores, um, what are the things that actually are associated with not developing a, a disorder like depression? That actually was what we were studying. And so uh, there are now these very large data resources. Um, for example, in the UK, a biobank, which has you know, half a million people, genetics, we know who ended up developing depression or who didn't. And we could look across all of these things and say, what were the things that seemed to be protective? And we've done this in a couple of other scenarios as well. Two things in particular keep coming up um, that are actionable. One of them is physical activity. So physical activity seemed to be protective, even among people who were at high risk genetically. And the other, well, what would you guess the other one was? Nutrition? No. Nope. How about attachment? Social connectedness. Social connectedness. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah. Attachment. Um, so that seems to be a powerful protective so, effect, even in adulthood. So, so social connection, not necessarily with a primary caregiver, just with... Others. 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 So in other words, in other words, so it, we used to think, for example, I mean, maybe that you can help explain this. We used to think that that zero to three mm. the critical period and kids who were traumatized or deprived or, or vulnerable in various different ways, you know, um, it was like the kiss of death. And now it seems as though 14 to 26, you know, which we've talked about a lot, when the brain is myelinating, when the neurons are connecting from the lower to upper parts of the brain, that we can actually undo or redo the vulnerabilities. Even if you had a bad experience early on, you can kind of make up for it later on at, you know, in adolescence. Mm -hmm. Is that? That's the hope. I mean, we're, I think there's a lot that we still have to learn about how possible that is or, or how best to do those things. But we do know that the good news is that the, you know, our brains are very plastic. So your brain is changing while we sit here and talk. There are changes going on at a, at a biological level in the brain. It is true that in early life, and then there are some other sensitive periods like in adolescence, um, the brain is really doing a lot of work to tune into the environment around it and figure out what's going to be adaptive given this environment. And those are these sensitive periods where it gets a lot of work done uh, takes bets on what the world's going to be like. What it ought to hold on to. I mean, that's that whole, whole complement factor going after certain um, right. neurons what it and those microglial cells taking out the ones. Yes. That so need. there's pruning going on, and um, you know, for for if you think about it, I mean, it's remarkable what the brain accomplishes in a really short period of time. Language, <laughs> obviously, is one. Right. Yeah. You you land in some place, Missouri or 
Kansas. I, I landed in both. <laughs> okay, there you go. Uh, or uh, in uh, you know in Germany or in Malaysia, uh, and then uh, you know the language is totally different, and yet within a couple of years you're fluent in that language. None of us can do that now, Amazing. right? Um, because the brain is tuning in to certain kinds of information in its environment. And it's like the most sophisticated computer you could imagine. At a certain contextual time, though. Exactly. Right. right. Like, a, like, it ain't going to happen when I'm 53, but it could happen when I'm four. Right. And, and so the beauty of that is that, you know, nurture can have uh, big effects. The environment can have big effects. The, the flip side, of course, is that creates a window of vulnerability. So if, you, if your brain's taking bets on what the emotional language or the social language around you is going to be like, based on what you're hearing... Um, you know, and that language is one of uncertainty or harshness or threat, that sort of ha has a big impact and sometimes a lasting impact. If it's, uh, you know, consistency and much more nurturing, that also programs things to some degree. But we do know that these changes can continue to happen. It, it's a little bit like the language situation. So if you learn a new language after age, say, 14, you typically have an accent in that language, right? People know that, you know, my relatives came from Eastern Europe. The ones who, uh, my mother was very young. My mother's mother was, you know, in her 30s or whatever. She had an accent for the rest of her life. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, but she could learn the language. She was fluent, so you certainly can learn that. Um, but it's harder. It's harder when you've passed through those periods. Um, and so that's what we need to, to leverage, I think, to help people it, build resilience. It does sound, it, well, it sounds both exciting and frustrating. So the exciting part is that it opens up a whole new avenue to help people to not get sick in the first place, right? Like all of these opportunities to take advantage of um, protective measures during these periods of presumed vulnerability as a means of sort of hedging our bets that downstream they'll do better if we take advantage of that time. The problem is that it seems like we always go after this with brick and mortar. Like we, we build another office, get more doctors, more clinicians, more mental health folks. Whereas if one of the two big finds, one was exercise, one is um, community, why not just build more community centers and tracks? Mm -hmm. like, like seriously, like yeah. why not have that be a major public health initiative? It's cheap. It sounds like it's got tons of data in support of it. It's measurable. And you could find out. You can probably look now at areas that have community centers and areas yeah. that don't and see who's doing better. That's right. And it probably makes you feel better, both. But that's right. the whole point, yeah. right? Like, like, like I mean, you experience is, is changed. I mean, when you exercise or when you connect with other people, there are good feelings that results and potentially protective factors that, 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 are, that, come, that come to play. Right. I mean, you know, some of the, the environmental effects are big problems that have, that for our society are difficult to to, you know, have been difficult to resolve. Things like deprivation and, uh, you know, poverty yeah. and racism and all the things that we, that are on a big scale contributing to a lot of adversity for people. Um, but you're right, there are, there are some actionable things we could imagine doing that are not the obvious, you know, we'll prescribe somebody a medicine that might well on a public health level have a large effect. It and also makes me think, given the extent to which these are somewhat rancorous times and people are yelling at each other all the time, if, if people are in their most vulnerable years and experiencing a world where mostly what folks do is yell at each other, uh, are we going to kind of reap what we sow in 20... Like, I don't know the answer to this, but I worry that uh, kids who've sort of yeah. grown up... Maybe they're not. Maybe they're oblivious to it. I mean, I, 
you know, Gene and I both see kids uh, in our practice, maybe it doesn't affect them the way it affects me, but I worry that this is what they're being primed for. Yeah, I mean, I think even if it's not directly affecting their brain in some fundamental way, certainly their experience of conflict and adversity and lack of cooperation can't be too good. Now, when it comes to actual real trauma and adversity, like maltreatment of kids, there is pretty compelling evidence that it actually changes the way kids develop information processing. So mm -hmm. they become experts in detecting anger, even when you know you or I might not see it there. Well, and, they, and they also have false positives for anger. They have a lot of false right. positives. Right, because they don't want to miss it. That's right. right. So those kinds of things, I, I agree, are, are potentially adverse. Now, I also, to, to you know, make the point to folks, because sometimes People worry about genetics and, you know, oh, everything's cooked, right, because of genetics, which is not true. But people also worry about the environment sometimes that way, too. Like, I didn't, you know, talk to my kid uh, for two hours a day and read to them for five hours a day and use the right stroller and so uh, those kinds of things. And what we know is that the brain is pretty resilient. So even in the face of significant trauma, most kids actually do okay. Yeah. Um, but there's also just kind of a level of good enough that turns out to be good enough. And if the brain is expecting certain kinds of things, like there's a caregiver, there's um, you know, some stimulation in the environment, they can form some kind of attachment, uh, there's some social uh, cues, it's not extreme deprivation, um, people do pretty well. It's not like you have to optimize right. the environment 24 hours a day. So, so we just took the most modern science and wandered back to the World War II era Winnicott, well, Winnicott, right? yeah. yeah. Who, who, who said, who you said, don't have to be great. He's got to be good enough. And we say that to parents all the time. That you only have to be good enough. And, we, and, yeah. and, and you know... Um, actually, I say yeah. good enough's pretty good, actually. I don't say you only have to be good enough. I say, like, you, yeah, so you play with them tomorrow, but not the next day because you got stuff going on. That's like, right. like, that's... The flip side of that is that you become so obsessive that you could actually imagine doing some some harm, which is I think what Winnicott noticed too. People were saying, "What do we do? We're rushing our kids down to these bomb shelters all the time." He says, "It might be okay. It'll right. probably be okay for a lot of them, yeah. even though I mean it's hard to imagine anything. Well, I guess we could imagine things more adverse than the the Blitzkrieg, but it was pretty bad, right? Like the bomb, and that's that's where Winnicott coined that term, like during and based on his experience during that time." So Winnicott, just for the audience's sake, Winnicott was this famous uh, pediatrician uh, who became a you know a, a psychoanalytic a, psych, a psychoanalytic theorist. Thinker, yeah. And, you know he talked about emotional development, and to his credit, you know he, what he said early on is is that is that development is based on two primary areas. One is called the biological endowment, which is your genetics and your you know you know your biology. And the other one is a facilitating environment, which is exactly what we're talking about here, which exactly. is like, what's the, what is the environmental provision that helps accommodate? So, you know, if parents are in tough shape, if they're not doing the best job, if you come home because you had a really rough time and you're screaming and yelling, but the kids have siblings or the kids have a, an aunt or an uncle, or the kids has a good teacher or mentor in school, or the kids, by the way, who lose their family because for one reason or another and, 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 and you know, are, you know, in foster care and have a great mentor. You know, we've heard all kinds of stories of resilience, and what happens in, in these cases, at least in my experience, is there's something in the environment. There's a, 
usually it's a human connection. Well, that was Gill's study. That was his longitudinal study at McLean. Right. That the most robust predictor of kids who'd been hospitalized doing well was a person to whom they could uh, relate. And it was almost never the psychiatrist or the therapist or even the parent. It was usually a coach, a teacher, a mm. uh, like that, he found in, in, with a, a fairly trusted adult, large and, yeah, yeah, a trusted yeah. adult figure. Yeah, yeah. and yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think that's right. You know, I give some t- again, but people have anxieties in the other direction of, you know, am I doing enough? Am I? Are they being stimulated enough? When you're past that good enough threshold, and I think that also causes people distress because people make the assumption that if, you know, not enough is bad, then too much must be good. And I use the example of, I, nobody remembers this anymore, but do you remember the oxygen bars? Oh, yeah. You, know, yeah, yeah. you would go to yeah. a place and put <laughs> nasal prongs in your nose. And they, then, they only do that in the NFL now on the sidelines. Well, that's true. <laughs> right, right. But, right. but people used to pay yeah. dollars to go into these yeah. places. And the theory was, you know, not having oxygen is toxic. And so... We'll give you more oxygen than you need. Which, and by the a, way, is also, is also toxic. toxic. Right. <laughs> right. It's also toxic, and it has absolutely no therapeutic benefit because your body is designed to just need to be saturated to a certain amount. Anything above that does you no particularly great good. Yeah. And for the parents who are anxious about doing it perfectly or doing it right or kind of being down on themselves, you know, we have to be careful because the kids are picking up on their anxiety and their level of stress, and they may interpret it as, well, like, what did I do wrong? Or you know, and, and it, it 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 sets it sets a it sets the stage for the kid to blame themselves or to, you know, to pick up on the anxiety of the parent and potentially you know, so, take, take care of the parent. So out of curiosity, what do you say to let's say you're working with a family and the parents aren't doing so well, and and you can see that. What's your advice to them, in as a means of protecting their kids? from all of the things that we've just been talking about? What would you say to the well, parents? Well, I'd say to them, you know, if, if, you, can't, if you can't do do it well enough and you know that, then who else is in, in, in the life of your child that you can kind of, like, lean on? You so, know, who so, else is in your community? So this might, the reason I ask that, this might explain why community comes up as that kind of ro- mm. among the yep. robust predictors. Mm-hmm. Like, if, it, if it's not you, the community needs you and you need the community. Because at some point, it's going to come back around. Right. You know, there's an ex- a sort of extreme example of this, in a sense, and another study that, that we did in um, soldiers who had been deployed to combat and who were studied before and after they came back. Um, and, you know, in Afghanistan, they had saw, seen combat. We actually also had genetics in this study, and we could look at um, among those soldiers who had been exposed to high, medium, low combat trauma or who had genetic high, medium, low risk, what were the things uh, that, that might have protected? And we were particularly interested in the social connection. And there was, there's a thing in the military called uh, unit cohesion, which is sort of the sense of how much your unit has your back, you can trust your superior officers and so on. And it turned out that having been exposed to a lot of trauma, predicted depression, having a high genetic risk did, but to the extent that you were high on this unit cohesion, this social cohesion, it was like you didn't really have those risk factors. It pushed the risk wow. way back down oh, to wow, the baseline. So if you're in the military, like the advice would be, this is the most important factor in sending folks, which, which kind of goes, probably makes for the best unit too, but also it's protective. Right. It's like the, it's like the, proper health thing to do. Can I just ask a question that's a little bit out of, out of anxiety here? How much exercise is considered? <laughs> that's benefit? a very good question. Let, well, like, it turns out that in the studies that we've done, and, and this is true borne out in other studies, 
it, uh, it's, it can be pretty modest. So even light activity, uh, in a recent study we did, you know, everything from stretching to yoga to more moderate and significant activity. The, the numbers that have come out of some of these studies suggest that, you know, an, uh, an extra half hour a day um, gets you maybe about a, you know, this is very rough and lots of caveats, but gets you about a 20% decrease in risk. De- decrease in risk of? Of depression. Of depression. Of bad. Of just bad. <laughs> of bad. Right. But I might point out that, you know, yeah. what Jordan's been studying is psychiatric disorders, right? So, but this also applies to other medical conditions as right. well. I this mean, is the nice thing about physical activity is, it's, <laughs> you know, there aren't many... Uh, it's heart healthy too. Right. It's heart healthy. It's, it seems to be good for lots of things unless you overdo it. Yeah. And then you can, I guess, invoke kind of evolutionary theory for why that would be. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'll, I'll, let me take this one more direction. And that is, is that what this speaks to, um, you know, the trend in psychiatric treatment has been, you know, psychopharmacology. And m- many psychiatrists have been, have not, don't provide psychotherapy. It's don't, also been largely reactive and not proactive. It's been reactive. But, but, but this, what this says to me, <clears throat> and, and since... I do psychotherapy. In fact, I, in my own practice, I don't just give meds. I, I, I want to have an ongoing relationship with the kid and with the family and with other members of the family, whether it's a kid or an adult. I'll see other members of the family. So it may also speak to relooking at how we provide psychiatric treatment. You know, it doesn't have to be individual. It can be group. It can be, it can be kind of but it has to involve an engagement. Right? So in other words, you really need to be involved at, at, at kind of an emotional level with your patients. And we have to be able to have a system of care that provides for that and yeah. training that provides, provides for that. access. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's the other thing. So we could, we could talk all day. We could talk all day. Uh, but on and, this one... And we, sh- we should... We- Talk more with you, Jordan. You yeah, should come come on back and share some of your vinyl. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's not Absolutely. a metaphor. He, it's literally vinyl <laughs> records. That's all he means. Right, right. No, I, I was listening to one of your episodes r- recently where you were talking about big hair bands. Oh, I really, did mention <laughs> that. Did bring back all kinds of like what band? I just well, you were talking about many of the bands that I didn't like, but I I, I did have the shoulder pads and the long hair and the big hair and all that stuff, and so I. I well, which band? I'm just wondering which one comes which to bands mind for I, you. Yeah, for big hair bands. Yeah. Oh well, you know, I, I uh, you know, I was a Led Zeppelin fan and all that, but that that's pre. Uh, big that is pre. Hair. They were sort of big hair before it was called big that's hair. Right, but right. I've been listening all a those... lot lately to um, uh, what is I always get the title wrong. What is not now and never should be, or oh, what right. is now? And right. Yeah. It's such a good those song. Are... I'd forgotten how good it was. You were kind of allowed to like it when I was in high school. You could either like. The Who or Led Zeppelin. Those right. are like the rules, right. which are really dumb. Like, they're right. both really good. But yes, I'm glad that you heard that. Yeah, Thank that you. stuck with me. Good. So uh, as we wrap things up, um, um, well, we, we talked a little bit about the news, but we usually end up with what's what's been in the news uh, that, that has affected us, and uh, apart from the politics. Per usual, maybe. it's been a slow news week. <laughs> oh, my God. But but is there anything other than politics that 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 and the Super Bowl that you know that stands out for for? I I saw this thing about Sesame Street opening up to Syrian refugee kids. Did you see that in the? No, yeah, I, I heard about. That. Uh, it's just an incredible effort to really bring the kind of education and um, uh, you know positive. Uh, Imagery to, uh, you know, we were just talking about unbelievable trauma and adversity. 
a gargantuan humanitarian crisis that we've almost forgotten in an unbelievably short amount of time. It's like it's not even in the news now. Right. I, I didn't see. I saw the thing in Sesame Street that they have now a um, character with autism. Mm. And you know, I wonder. Cool. I, I, one thing about Sesame Street that strikes me that I always thought was just so brilliant about it was that um, they brought the adults in with the kids. They always would have you know celebrities that would tell jokes and stuff that that, that, that went way over the kids' heads, but kept the parents involved. And I remember when my kids were watching it, and Robin Williams would be on or whatever, Harry Belafonte or whomever. And the kids were saying, like, who is this? But it kept the adults connected. So you would watch Sesame Street with your kids, and everybody would get something out of it. I remember R.E.M. doing Tiny Happy Monsters. Oh really? Yeah, it was great. Nature. It was great. Yeah, but it kept the parents in <laughs> yeah. too. So that so it not only not only was educational and inspirational and creative, but it kept the parents and the kids watching together, which I think you know is is, is what, such a great one of the thing. things we that makes about it what so happened special. This week, actually, the highlight of my week was taking my daughter and her friend to Mean Girls. Have you seen? <laughs> you mean the live production? The live. Oh, production. I haven't seen it. No, no, no it's one of my gosh. favorite movies ever. I'm a little afraid to see the live one. Oh, it, it was, it's very funny. Excellent. It, yeah. Oh, but, you know, that kind of shared experience is memorable, priceless. Yeah. Yeah. Priceless. Pri- it's like the American Express thing. That's right. Price of the uh, yeah. meanest price. Well, uh, that wraps it up for today, everybody. And uh, we want to thank Jordan for being here. And um, uh, if you guys have any out there listening, if you have any questions or comments or thoughts about this nature-nurture business, please just you know shoot us an email and uh, let us know what you think. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks for having me. I'm Gene Bresson. And I'm Steve Slosman. Thanks, guys. began, uh, you know, in his pompous way. No, he had to say it like this. Right. It all, it began. all began in a right. 5,000 watt studio. Right. says he's imitating in the Anchorman. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> Who can That's turn very meta. the world on with her smile? I love that show. That is a great but show. But you know what's fascinating about that show? So there's another example, right? Like, that was a show on...